Hi everyone! Welcome back to another episode of Apply Club Events, hosted by IASA's Applied Anthropology Network. Today we have the pleasure of listening to Melissa Sefkin, a senior staff researcher at Waymo, with the topic, Anthropologists as Explorers, Innovators, and Managers? What does it take to have relevance in today's world? We hope you're going to enjoy this episode, and please don't forget to follow us on our diverse channels like Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, Slack, and more, which you can find in the show notes. And thank you all for being here. So many familiar names and faces. I wish I could uh, personally stop and chat with each of you that I've met before. Looking forward to talking with those um, that I haven't. So um, today I want to focus on a topic that's really been a perennial concern to anthropologists, which is about our impact and relevance of anthropology and of anthropological perspectives in today's world. So to fast forward a bit, the key concern that this discussion revolves around is that of positioning how we engage, where we engage from, and what the affordance or benefit of different sort of roles and positions that we might occupy has for us having impact in the world. So another title for this talk could be Being, being There 2.0, um, obviously refunctioning the uh, traditional notion of being there in anthropology as a hallmark of the ethnographic method uh, to the questions of where we stand. Now I have to see if this is gonna actually forward when I try to. All right, yes. So um, to get there, let me just sort of give you a brief overview of what we'll talk about today. Um, I'm gonna to start by just summarizing my whole argument in brief and then turn to the question of why am I turning back to this perennial question and why now? Um, I'm going to look a little bit at some of what I consider some of the tropes that anthropologists have employed in trying to position themselves for impact um, and what those might bring, but then also make an argument about why I think we need to do more and come up with yet more ways of having uh, of taking positions and being positioned for impact. So that's what will lead us into the final provocation question. Um, so that we have um, a discussion for all of us, hopefully, to be able to engage from wherever it is that we stand. So what is the argument in brief? Um, again, this is about the question of how are we um, trying to have relevance, having impact in the world, and what kinds of ways. So the argument in brief is that it is very important that we sharpen what we know, that we show up as experts, as um, as people who have have deep or or you know meaningful knowledge about certain topics it's also really important that we sharpen how we come to know what we know that we are exploring and continuing to um, consider you know the the basis of our knowledge and how we arrive at that and there's a great effervescence as i think you probably all know in being creative and thinking about how we know what we know but the forms and the structures of the world are constantly shifting and emerging. So this is the reason that I believe we also need to really contend with from where we act. What is it that allows us to be positioned in what kinds of roles um, so that we can be where things are happening? And not just that we happen to be there in a passive observational role, but what kinds of accountabilities we need to assume. 
So um, I titled this, you know, from, from uh, explorer to innovator to manager. And some of you might notice that currently I'm not a manager. Um, and in fact, this, this talk is not in any way about managers and managing. There is some great anthropological work going on about not just managers in general. There's a long tradition of that, uh, but more specifically anthropologists as managers um, happening currently out of uh, Denmark uh, in Scandinavia. That's not what this is about, but do look for that. Um, so uh, let me just tell you a little bit about where I do sit and what I'm doing currently. So I lead a domain of investigation for the Waymo um, Insights team or the Waymo User Experience Research team. And the domain that I'm concerned with is about um, how our autonomous driving vehicles will behave, how they move about in the, on the roads and how they behave. And it means I work pretty closely with the engineers who are of course the bulk of the organization um, making that happen. My people, if you like, as an anthropologist, uh, the community that I study are road users. So these are people on the road who are interacting in environments that, uh, that vehicles occupy. So broadly, it includes bicyclists, car drivers, motorcyclists, pedestrians, people who might work on the roads like school crossing guards or trash collectors, sanitation workers, folks like that. Um, and the bulk of my work so far, admittedly, though, has been on both manual drivers and pedestrians. Uh, I look forward to um, Jonathan. Hopefully someday we can do something together on bicycles. Uh, but um, there's, there's many, many more members of the community that I want to continue to engage with. And just to give you a feel there um, the, of the other areas for the Waymo User Experience Research and Insights team, um, other people would lead a focus on things like the, the riders of our services. So you may or may not know, but if you didn't know yet, you'll learn it now. Waymo does offer a public service, a, a robo-taxi ride hailing service in Chandler, Arizona, where you can hail a, um, a car, with, a vehicle without a human driver in it to get you around. So there's a lot of focus on the rider experience and, and information on how we're keeping riders informed. We also have a focus on the operations of Waymo, all the ways in which um, Waymo is getting its cars on the road and, and continuing to expand and what it takes to run this kind of organization. Uh, we do some work, in fact, I think, uh, 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 Benedict is on this meeting on trucking and some other areas that um, uh, Waymo is continuing to advance into in terms of the market. So we do work across a wide range of topics and my particular area is on the behavior. Um, and I'm not a manager currently, but I have been a manager. I've also been a consultant. I've been an internal consultant in my past. I've been a part of academic projects and scholarship. I've been the internal business client for academic projects and scholarship. I've been a researcher in a not-for-profit and so on. So I've occupied a really wide range of roles and I'm constantly asking this question, like what does what kind of role and position allow that others don't? What are the, the benefits and the costs, if you like, of, of occupying certain kinds of positions as we go about our work? And again, just to be clear, this does pick up on more recent anthropological or academic kind of rethinking about the question of positioning in anthropology, uh, the now decades old focus on studying up, studying sideways, doing patchwork 
work ethnography. Um, so I think that this conversation is in part in, in concert with those kinds of trends. So then we arrive at the question of, well, why are we then asking this now? Or why again? Um, and really it comes down to, as you see, the question of where do futures come from? So um, the truth is that I am considering, you know, when I think about these kinds of topics, I am always still somewhat in dialogue with my academic anthropology counterparts who are, you know, wondering about and sometimes still a little suspicious of those of us that go out into the world and to these other positions. Um, and so the question of why we are um, operating from within businesses and handholding with businesses is, um, is a significant part of this. But I'm guessing most of us on this call are here because we are more applied already. So what is the relevance of this question for you all? Um, I think that the question really does come down to this, how are we um, finding, accessing, noting futures and the emergence of what is, is going to become consequential in the future? And what do we do at those moments as we arrive at that sort of moment of emergence? So some have argued that the limits of anthropology, um, maybe even failure of anthropology, has been in being able to deal really productively and actively with the future or futures. So why do we say this? So anthropology has largely found purchase in focusing on structures, functions, symbols, artifacts, objects that while not 100% stable, are stable enough to render a pattern or identity. This is what we think of when we think of cultural practices. So for good historical reasons, we've been primarily focused on the reproduction of cultural practices. But what we often miss and what renders us, I think, less relevant in today's world is this focus on the emergent, on emergent forms and norms, on the development and coming into being of structures, norms, and forms as they focus. So the question is, how do we focus on these emergent forms? And this is what will take me to the question of not just how do we learn to look, but what, how do we know we're even there to begin with and that we can have an impact on them as they take place. Focusing on these kinds of moments and arenas is important because they, they are what are forming the future powered assemblages, uh, the consequential institute, in institutions of society. So what has happened so far? Oh, sorry, this was supposed to be a slightly different style um, slide, uh, but it'll work. So what have anthropologists done so far? I think so far anthropologists have responded to this call to like attend to the future and to emergent forms in two kinds of ways, two tropes if you like. The first is the anthropologist as an explorer. So this is the extent to which anthropologists are branching out to go to study new places and sites and objects of studying. Um, in some ways, uh, the, the exciting set of the um, anthropology clubs that Marcus uh, introduced earlier are suggestions of that. We go to financial centers, we go to labs, we go to all sorts of different kinds of places. Um, the other way, though, is that we rethink how we go about it. Again, we attend to the kind of tools and ways in which we build knowledge, and there's a, been a great effervescence in rethinking the forms of our doing of this kind of work. 
So in the first case about going to sort of uncharted territories and the anthropologist as an explorer, again, what we have found over the last several decades is really anthropology has to a great extent shifted from the focus on traditional, on you know the sort of village and those sorts of things to the, the high tech, the, uh, the, the consequential institutional, the very contemporary sorts of place. We're charting out new contours of the contemporary. And this is about refocusing our gaze into new directions on, onto new subjects. So, you know, there are many anthropologists these days focused on AI, on robotics, on biomedicine, on topics such as that, and in the labs and settings in which those things are, are happening. In terms of refunctioning our tools, and I should say you see here a picture of um, the Waymo Firefly. Um, I'll be honest, I used um, allowable stock photos from Waymo because I'm still figuring out what it takes to get permission to use some of our own uh, material, often which is not nearly as, um, the, the material I record is not always as crisp and as presentation worthy anyway. Um, so anthropologists, to my knowledge, had nothing to do with a firefly from Waymo, just to be very clear, this cute car that Waymo was driving around for a while. Um, but it is a refunctioning of form, a way of experimenting based on the tools and objects that we put into play with how people will interact and uh, what, what comes of the kind of hands-on future making. And this is the same thing that anthropologists are often doing, recreating our creator practices, our representational strategies to try out new kinds of things. And I will say you all in Europe and, and maybe especially in the Scandinavian countries, uh, Northern Europe that uh, are, are lying through Copenhagen and other places have been especially, you know, uh, richly thinking about that. And there's just a great deal of exciting work coming out uh, under the guise of, for example, Design Anthropological Futures, the work of Rachel Smith, Tom Otto, uh, uh, many others, and some of you, I think, on this meeting. So both of these kinds of approaches are important and inspiring, the becoming more exploratory, going into new settings, refocusing our gaze, and also refunctioning how we work and being experimental in, in, in trying out new things. But my point or my feeling is that these are also in and of themselves insufficient. What we really need to do is embrace new accountabilities and new positions. Um, <clears throat> So why is that? Why does position of engagement matter, particularly at this time and in these moments? And what does it look like in today's world? So let me provide two brief examples now from my own work that are suggestive of where and how you might see this kind of future making an emergence and the stakes about where we're positioned to be able to pay attention and do something with them. So the first comes from my existing work and ooh, apologies to Waymo, this, um, this photograph um, I brought in and it kind of squished things. That's our uh, Jaguar I-Pace that's uh, being tested in many places, including in San Francisco currently. Just uh, forgive the, the poor rendering of the, the um, photo here. But as uh, Marcus introduced, I am focused in the area of developing autonomous vehicles. And as I said earlier, especially focus on the question of behavior. How does this vehicle move about on the road? And what does that mean for people's experience on the road? Um, so 
I work closely with the engineers and I have to say, you know, this has been the oldest part of the, what Waymo of course was the original Google car project. Um, the engineers who are developing the behavior, it's the oldest part of the development of, of our technical systems. And one of the things that I want to say very clearly is I am just in awe of these engineers and not just their capabilities and the, the nuance and depth with which they think about the interactional aspects of a vehicle on the road with people in cities and different environments, uh, but also their concern for the kinds of questions and care that they bring to um, what they're doing. Um, that said, while they might be very sensitive in asking a question, what is good yielding behavior to pedestrians? Is there a difference between pedestrians who have, have the right of way, as we see in this photo, uh, where they're walking across a zebra crosswalk, most likely at a light, uh, or when it's clearly their turn? Is there a difference when there's a jaywalker or in an unmarked crosswalk, and uh, therefore you have to kind of negotiate whose turn it is? They're already thinking very deeply about these kinds of questions. But nonetheless, what my constant awareness as an anthropologist is, is to, to understand that we're not just bringing this new technology to life, but that we're affecting the social life of people in these public spaces. We're creating the future public roads, city environments of tomorrow. Um, so there's great promise in safety and, and the uh, environmental stewardship that we can get with autonomous vehicles, but we're also hoping to build sort of future roads, future public environments that will make us proud of having brought about this sort of new object into our social lives. So some of the kinds of things that I do look at and, and some of my colleagues on this call actually who have worked with me on these kinds of projects are, are how there are a whole host of simple, implicit, very nuanced, often very almost passive fleeting interactions that people will engage to move about on the road. The way in which we read each other's body language, the focus and gaze of people, um, where people are paying attention. And then if it's a pedestrian, how they're looking back at a vehicle and the way that they read the signs of the vehicle itself as a way of understanding the intentions of all the parties on the road. And there's a really um, nuanced but, but beautifully um, co often coherent dance that goes on as people figure out how to move about. Um, so we can, we can understand pretty quickly um, if there's a distracted driver, for example, maybe a harried professor on his way, on his way or her way to, to class, um, a rolling start that might signal that kind of impatience or distraction, um, a short stop at a crosswalk, where, which might be seen as a sign of politeness in a place like, I don't know, Iowa or a small town on the coast of California, but might be seen read differently on the busy streets of New York City or Berlin. So when um, in the future, or even now, if you were to go to Chandler, Arizona, San Francisco, and other places that Waymo and other um, uh, autonomous vehicle uh, developers are testing or driving their systems. So when the autonomous system, what we call the Waymo driver, drives the car in the future, what will it do and how will it shape our sense of use of public space and sociality? So would a robo car or the, the Waymo driver inch forward at a stop intersection to try to take its place or will it wait patiently behind a sidewalk? How impatient or assertive should it be 
and when and where. So the implication of all this is about shaping not just how the car will move, but what our future experience on the road will really be. So I think it's pretty evident in the case of um, autonomous vehicles that we're driving a very future-focused emergent form of interaction. But it's often also the case that in much more known and established arenas of everyday work and, and life, uh, that there are also such emergent forms. So before coming to um, work on autonomous vehicle development at Waymo and before uh, Waymo at Nissan, I was focused especially on enterprise business context and especially in the um, development of work systems and tooling. And again, I'm very happy that at least one of my colleagues from that time is here with us. Um, Obina, you'll probably recognize the example of what I'm about to share here. Um, but just to give you a sense of how even in the mundane everyday existence of everyday uh, practices, there are these moments of emergence that we uh, are, would do well to sort of notice and attend to. So at IBM, I was part of building an online platform that was designed for peer-to-peer -peer work. Um, so if you think about it, it's sort of a version of a gig economy, um, work sharing kind of uh, platform, but this is fully contained within a large um, organization of all fully employed employees. So these were people who could ask each other to uh, participate in or share the, doing certain kinds of work. So at one point we were faced with a question about the workflow, which is, should we route a request um, for performing the work through an employee's manager? Or should the employee themselves who's signing up to do this work have the right to say um, that they are doing it and leave the manager out of the picture? So do we seek manager approval or what should we do? And what we decided to do in this case is we said, let's just send a notification to the managers. Let's tell them that your employee has signed up for this work and they'll be performing some of this work, but not force an actual workflow moment of an approval through there. So how is this significant in terms of future making? What it's really about, if you think about it, is the entrenchment or re-entrenchment or um, reinforcement or not of hierarchies and of managerial authority and control. And it was a little intervention into what kind of future workplaces and what uh, sort of social institutional experiences we're encoding into those systems. So often these kinds of design moments are uh, flow, fly by without anybody stopping to ask and pay attention. So we were trying to intervene in these subtle sorts of ways in what kind of future organization is being made. So it's this that leads me to the point of view that our, that, you know, positionality matters and that we should be thinking about the matters of our positioning, uh, the, the various roles in which we occupy and what they do and don't allow. So to summarize then, kind of the little journey that we've been on here, let me just sort of pull out what I think are some of the key things about um, being there at that moment when the future is being made, when things are in their emergent state. So the first is that both of the examples that I talked to are nothing if not mundane. 
There was no pomp and circumstance in calling them out. There was no great, oh, what a great achievement that we learned to move through an intersection. Well, actually, that is a pretty big achievement if you know anything about the development of, of uh, autonomous driving vehicles. Um, but this particular difference of like how far, how, how fast, how, what is our buffer between us and others? Um, and, or, you know, do we notify or do we ask for approval of somebody in a workflow system? They're pretty unremarkable. They're not being um, uh, celebrated or, or highlighted in many ways. Secondly, they both involved a kind of ethnographic sensibility to how things work, to how public spaces are differ differentially experienced from different people and positions on the road, and how different settings can create different kinds of environmental experiences and what it means to be in the business of influencing changes to how that happens. And secondly, the ethnographic sensibility about how work works, how institutions and hierarchies work. So the, we, we bring that kind of, have the ability to bring that kind of ethnographic sensitivity. Third, we're drawing on anthropological frames of analysis related to things like institutions, uh, forms of meaning and identity making for people on the road, for example, public interactional frames, what counts as proper etiquette of uh, people in, on the streets and in different settings, uh, placemaking is another important thing, or in the case of the um, institutional work systems on hierarchy and questions of self-determination and empowerment at work. And fourth, and the fourth reason that I would call out as to why these are reflective of and help us sort of think through the questions of positioning is that they came down to my, they could do come down at the end of the day to my own actions, to any of us who were involved in these, that we're there and that we become an accountable actor. We're not just commenting on and pointing at and saying, oh, here, here's something for you to go um, address, but actually having accountability ourselves in what some of these things become. So in short, I'm suggesting that this kind of positionality matters, that being there and being there over time to be party to the moments when the future is being made to when emergence is happening and being accountable is really critical to, to our ability to have impact. But what that leads, and so that sort of concludes my talk, and I think it just to sort of suggest what it leads us to as, um, as a provocation is, you know, what, what are the different ways in which uh, we do tend to be party to these consequential sites of, of action and behavior? We operate as consultants, as project investigators, as internal re researchers, external researchers, advisors, all of those have different um, sort of affordances as to what it is that we're creating. But, but as if you followed my argument now, I was suggesting that um, the positions from the outside are going to be uh, perhaps a, a little more challenged in being able to really drive impact uh, because there are uh, differences of accountability. So these are the kinds of questions I thought we could go off and discuss in our uh, breakouts. And with that, I'll wrap it up. Okay, thank you very much, Melissa. I'd say we all a round of applause. Um, that was a very, very inspirational and um, interesting talk, I think. Also 
reflecting a lot on on your career and for how long have you have already been in a position of um, taking on accountability in that field, for example, right, in those fields. Um, so thanks a lot. Um, I assume that there might be some questions to Melissa. Um, what we usually do um, is that we directly go into breakout rooms, but being aware that some people might want to jump, jump off a bit earlier, I would open up the floor um, to some kind of general questions to Melissa for five minutes, and then we go into breakout rooms. So if you have a question, um, just unmute yourself, uh, ask it or raise your hand, whatever works for you. If not, we directly go into breakout rooms. Heinrich. Yeah, I do have a question. <clears throat> Thanks, Melissa, for a great thought-provoking um, and wrapping a lot of different things into, into one talk. talk. <clears throat> I do have a question, so. And uh, in presenting your two more traditional ways of looking at anthropologists, the explorer, which of course is very traditional, <clears throat> and the inventor, which is not quite as traditional. So, but you said that is not sufficient. Now, I would think that the inventor, if you think it in the right way, of course, is very accountable to future making much more than the explorer itself is. So it's maybe the move from being there to acting there, if you wish. <clears throat> so why is that not, not enough? Is, is there something about the um, the role of the inventor as they have been played out in the teams that anthropologists mostly work in that you feel like there's not enough accountability in that or where do you see the accountability missing? It's a great question. Thank you, Henry. Um, I think, so first of all, I guess what I would say is, um, frankly, people like me who have been at this a long time, thanks for reminding me of my age, Marcus. Um, <laughs> um, we, we in part have our roles and are, have been able to sort of develop and, pra and, and practice um, our trade here because the world is, fail, is littered with failed innovations, right? How many things have come in, been brought into being? How many tools or objects that sort of make a splash momentarily but never really take hold? and are not effective in sort of any kind of lasting effect. Now, I think those of us, especially scientists who, who know how things work from behind the scenes realize that very often, you know, the kernel of the Newton or the palm reader, for those of you who are too young, look it up online. Uh, these were the predecessors to smartphones. Um, you know, that some of those inventions actually be paved the way for what would become the smartphone, but they on themselves didn't last, right? So the one thing is that inventing alone often doesn't add up sufficiently. There's many more things invented than what um, uh, actually take hold and um, have meaning. And then if we look specifically, I think in the anthropological arena, you know, again, I, I did confess that, that my original thoughts on this topic were largely in dialogue with academic anthropologists, maybe even more specifically US-based um, academic anthropologists, uh, things like the notion of the para-ethnographic coming out of their Center for um, Contemporary Ethnography and it, um, Irvine, University of California, Irvine, George Marcus. Um, certainly, you know, I'm a product of the Rice University Anthropology Program um, and the whole crisis of representation there. These are longstanding questions. 
but many different inventive forms, speculative design, design fictions, um, immersive experiences can still be done fairly removed. Like it can still be as much a kind of intellectual exercise to engage people, but then everybody walks away and goes home and there's not that necessarily lasting impact. So I, I think you have a great observation, which is that the, the, the anthropologist as innovator is already kind of newer and, um, and it's a step towards a, a positioning for different accountability, but I would say in and of itself doesn't necessarily add up to that. Okay, um, unless Heinrich wants to follow up on this quickly. Uh, I think Obina, you had your hand on, uh, up first. Okay, uh, thank you. Thank you, Marissa, for this awesome talk. Um, uh, you talked about the relationship you have with the engineers who actually build these features. Uh, and as equal another uh, persona, which is the business owners who have vested interest in how this future unfolds. And I'm interested to know whether you, the, what the role of the anthropologist should be in reconciling the conflict that often emerges between these three entities, the business owners who have vested interest in how this future unfolds, the engineers who actually build this future, and the anthropologist as an inventor who has um, who is interested in the impact of this future. So what is the role of the anthropologist in reconciling this conflict? Uh, Obina, what a rich and challenging question. I, um, I hope you and others maybe can also respond what you think about that. Um, you point out a really important thing. And I think, you know, by the way, I came in costume today. I'm wearing my hoodie, my Silicon Valley tech worker hoodie. Um, it's the first time I've had a hoodie since I joined Waymo. I'm so I feel so much a part of that. And that's, but it's also put me even more in touch than I think we experience. Uh, Obina and I work together at IBM, um, where we were a little bit more in a full research position than what I am now, where, like you say, there's this interesting sort of triangle between the business owners, the product owners who are trying to drive a certain direction. Um, the the engineers, and I guess I would say not just the anthropologists, but the user experience um, researchers or insights people of, of all backgrounds who are often trying to um, uh, both sort of redirect and cajole things in certain directions um, based on our commitment to kind of users and, and the human-centered aspect of things. So, um, I like to think that we do have a, a particular role in being able to help mediate the relationship between the business owners and the engineers. Um, but, but I do think um, it, it, because we occupy a slightly third role and our, our you know, commitments are, um, are not just to the business and not just to building technology or building something because we can, but you know, building the right thing at the right time for positive impact um, to people. But that said, I do think one of the challenges and why I wouldn't want to sign up anthropologists as, um, as being the owners of, or accountable only to that role is that um, the level of depth it takes to truly understand um, the work and um, 
the possibilities that the engineers face and the constraints they work under, and ditto from the business owners of you know the the kind of machinery behind the scenes uh, that they're fully operating in. And so I do think that we can help, like I say, help kind of mediate there, um, but uh, but but acknowledging that we we too often probably are missing parts of the puzzle um, that they you know have to live with and contend with more deeply on a daily basis. Um, so that's that's a little bit of what I have to say that maybe didn't um, quite go the direction you were thinking. So if you want to ask more or share your view on that, Albina, I'd love to hear. Thank you. Thank, I think it's particularly uh, tricky in the area of driverless vehicles. Uh, there's a lot of uh, interest in how it unfolds and uh, how it helps to shape the future, the kind of future world we're looking to. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, I, agree, I completely agree with you, and thank you for the answer. Thanks. Okay, uh, thanks, Abina. Thanks, uh, Melissa. I, I'd like to follow up a little bit on this uh, topic that, that you just mentioned, the two of you, um, because I've also worked in the field of autonomous driving, right? So Melissa knows that at least. And um, I think to answer or follow up on Abina's question, I think that compared to the business owner and the engineer, we are probably the ones that look a little bit more outside the box and try to bring in other factors than just the constraints of the technology or the constraints of the business model um, and try to bring in other values and ethical um, questions that others might not have the time even to reflect on, right? Um, and I think what I realized in my work with autonomous cars was also that the standardization that industry needs actually to kind of bring something into the world and reducing the risk for all those companies and corporates to um, kind of not lose loads of money in developing completely different things and um, a strain somehow is already one factor that has influenced so much um, the, the kind of potential that you have to work under within, for example, um, external human machine interaction interfaces, right? I mean, um, you cannot just go wild and develop whatever you want in the end, um, every company like BMW and Audi and Co, Waymo, um, Toyota, they are all interested in kind of getting up and out some sort of standard under which they can start working with reduced risk. At least that's what I realized. And that's already one constraint that, that everybody has to be aware of. And then also our anthropologists kind of potential to influence that is automatically limited by that in a way, right? And that's not even, just kind of the business owner's um, and motivation to, to be viable or um, profitable yet, right? That's much earlier in the, in the development. I, I think it's a really interesting point. And yeah, I, given um, some of the projects that you've done and, and seen that um, firsthand as have I now, but I'm still getting used to what these um, kind of standards regimes you know, both how they come into play, and I've, I've intersected with that some, uh, but also their sort of implication and meaning. And again, I will say, you know, there's nothing like being a part of helping engineer and put on the road something that's essentially two tons of steel, which barrels towards people uh, at high speeds to make you pause and think, 
you know, boy, is it a good thing that the world isn't just left to the hands of anthropologists um, to figure out what would be desirable or what we'd want, um, but that there are things like standards that help shape and guide um, what's happening. That said, like any other sort of um, creation of, uh, of, of, of objects and things in the world, those all start from somewhere and they evolve in their own particular ways. Um, but it is heavily regulated for good reason um, in most cases, although you can sort of see the kinds of absurdities. Uh, but I think it's a great point, uh, Marcus, and one well worth exploring or, or, or spelling out a little bit. Um, many years ago when I worked for Sapient Corporation, we were consultants, um, I almost had the opportunity to actually do a, an ethnography of standards creation in a very different arena. This was jewelry and diamond um, uh, production. But, you know, that sort of it, it, casting an anthropological lens on that very process, I think an ethnographic lens would be super valuable uh, just to sort of show where and how it emerges and how it comes into play and the role and function it plays. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sorry, Laura, in a second. Um... And now some hands go up. I love to see that, obviously. Um, just a follow-up sentence on, on, on your comment, Melissa. Um, I think that's something that we have discussed several times at different locations too, right? How, how can we actually look into the different sort of interaction cultures and norms that are out there in different places or even spaces within a diff uh, the same region, right? I mean, you have looked into um, interactions um, comparing, for example, Tehran, um, intersections to to the, the Western American, for example, um, and that's obviously completely different. And now, when you look at standards and you try to standardize the interaction or the form of interaction that autonomous vehicles have or will have in the future with different kind of environments, you, this is highly contradicting, right? Um, on the other hand, everybody knows what red, um, green, and yellow means in traffic usually, right? So, so there is also this kind of maybe longer period of user adoption that we have to face. With autonomous vehicles and that's also something that um, is interesting in itself I guess. Um, yeah so. just a little note on that I think what you point to with the red yellow green um, we also part of I think with the role that um, folks like myself or a couple of others who are here who work as part of the Waymo Insights team um, part of what we also can help do is bring in historical consciousness so red yellow green was not self-evident I mean that emerged it grew it had to be learned it had to be adopted um, there were, you know, to the point that now what color of red, of course, is standardized and there's, you know, constraints around how it's used and all, but those didn't arrive, you know, willy nilly, they, they evolved over time. So one of the constant questions that I always have in the back of my mind and, and would like to take on even more fully is how do we get our arms around thinking about the processes of adaptation um, themselves and, and thinking forward as to what that can look like and will look like. I mean, shockingly, I'm finding myself more and more calling on the efforts of almost being the social engineer, which I think most anthropologists would be anxious about like asserting or owning, to, you know, like, of course, we want to stay clear of that degree of kind of uh, interventionist um, activity. But I think, um, you know, it's just unavoidable that that's the what what will begin to happen. And if we can play a role in guiding things, hopefully we can make things better. Thanks, uh, Laura, I give you the stage now. Uh, thank you, Melissa, for, for a fantastic and very provocative um, 
uh, uh, input and impulse. Um, so I uh, wanted. I'm I'm really happy that that you mentioned the the bit about social engineering because obviously that is what what makes anthropologists very uncomfortable and finicky. Uh, but I also wanted to bring back the original question that Obina had about this relationship between the business developers, the engineers, and uh, you toss in anthropologists in there. Um, uh, just as a bit of a background, I'm, I work in the context of, of innovation um, and robotics, but um, I, uh, I work with, uh, um, until now, primarily with humanoid robotics. So that's that's not even autonomous vehicles. That's, um, you know, uh, so it's it's very interesting because I have ke I keep having those conversations about what is it that the anthropologist contributes um, to that uh, triad of, of specialisms, right? Um, and one of the things that I would say is that anthropologists can make markets, uh, which I think makes the business developers very, very uncomfortable. Um, so we, it, yeah, it's just a comment. Um, but then I have to turn the lens back on ourselves and kind of it brings it back to your provocation about what is our positionality? Is it outside? Is it inside? Um, I think it's um, in many ways, and in the case of, you know, in the case of humanoid robotics is uh, what's the business case for interaction, right? That's always the case. Um, because a lot of like venture capital, for example, Notoriously, it stays away from humanoid robotics precisely because the business case for replay, you know, what's the business case and profitability of interaction? Nobody's asking those questions about humans, right? What's the business case for humans interacting? Well, guess what? A whole world is built on that. Um, but when you are asking that in engineering terms for a robot, it becomes a very different kind of cell. And so, um, I guess the accountability that we have, right, in perhaps answering your, your provocation a little bit, is that we start also as anthropologists, not only bringing our, um, you know, recalibrating our mindset and our tools towards the future, um, but also changing our relationship to capital. Um, and to to you know finance and to what that means uh, for the making of the future, right? Yeah, what beautifully said. I think those are really um, provocative, evocative sort of, of comments. And and I would just add that that you know I think um, that kind of market making I do think has probably been maybe it doesn't always get forwarded as such, but that's been in some ways the large success of what's become more broadly, people might think of either business anthropology or design anthropology, a lot of the you know internal groups, um, say at Intel and all were largely about um, identifying, and many of the consultants who are out there are, are about identifying market opportunities and, and actually engaging in market making. Um, but I think that the relationship of, of, you know, kind of that what is the identified as the um, object or subject of value in a way and, and what kind of valuing are we doing? I love your comment. Nobody's asking about, you know, the business model of human interaction. that uh, It only comes up in terms of um, vehicle interaction to, to tie it back to what Marcus was 
um, referencing one of the areas that we overlapped a lot is uh, whether autonomous vehicles will in the future have additional or new or repurposed um, external signals. So, you know, turn signal, hazard light, what, what else is coming as it relates to autonomous vehicles. And um, one of the, the reasons it becomes a challenging um, topic to explore is because it will be standardized and regularized, it's not necessarily over the long term, at least, a market maker. It's a, it's a core standard um, requirement. So who is going to do the investment in developing it? You know, is it going to be the, the companies? Is it going to be academia? Where do those sort of uh, things evolve from? And, and, and how does that come into an emergence? So it's a very rich and thick set of questions that shows up in these, you know, kind of interactional arenas, as you're pointing to with the humanoid uh, robots uh, in some really interesting ways. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Lena, um, do you want to ask your question or is the book? Yes. Hello, and thank you for a great talk, Melissa. Um, I completely agree. Uh, anthropologists need to be relevant and have impact in the future. I'm just very curious about um, how we do so, how we are creative and experimental and sharpening ourselves and our tools and our approaches. So I think my question goes like, if you should put together a curriculum for the best anthropology education in the world, so what would you put on that curriculum? What courses, what disciplines should the should you be introduced to? What what tools should be there in order to to create like these uh, future ready anthropologists? A mm. uh, great question, a hard question, and I'm probably not the best um, situated to be able to answer that as I'm not in the business of educating currently. Um, but I do think, okay, so let's see if we, and, and actually that would be another wonderful question for the breakouts to sort of rephrase that uh, in that way. Um, so there, but there are a few, few things that I think can be part of that curriculum. So one is um, I actually am really an advocate for uh, bringing in from early days, and maybe this is happening now, you could tell me, you know, Jonathan, um, who I guess has, has dropped, but, um, you know, some of the people who are positioned in academia currently, you know, a kind of computational thinking, understand, you know, everything that we touch these days, or so many things, almost everything has some sort of computational element, uh, or even if it's not in real time um, operating in computational ways, it's probably uh, come about in part through that. And so, um, so just like a deeper familiarity of what computational thinking really looks like and what the expectations are for fulfilling or interacting in it. Um, maybe to the extent of knowing how to participate in, in rendering things computationally yourselves, but at least being familiar enough with what expectations and all would be. And I guess, you know, for me, I had a really kind of um, a little um, jaw dropping like caused me to, to stop short um, in my last position um, when I was talking to a really creative um, um, research engineering director uh, who was very open to ethnographic work and, and more human centered kind of perspectives. They sort of said, yeah, but at the end of the day, if you don't render things in numbers, then we really can't do anything with it. 
And I was just like, ah. <laughs> so, so I think there's an element about that. I also do think there's an element of sort of business understanding. This is one of the, the pieces of advice I do give to um, students when they reach out to me, and especially those who are about to enter the workforce through as a user experience researcher or a strategy role or something where they're uh, trying to take advantage of their ethnographic or anthropological background um, in, in a new role is to understand just the nature of organizations, the different parts and pieces that a, uh, a research organization has different interests and commitments than the finance group, um, which has different interests and commitments than the HR group, uh, the product groups, um, as Obina had brought up earlier, you know, you have product owners, you have the engineers, all these different parts and pieces, again, positions you even inside of organizations a little differently. And I think it would be well worth having more education about um, how uh, these organizations run. Now, I should say, I'll just admit that my own background, my father was a professor uh, in the social science, political science. I grew up very removed from the corporate arena and from business. So it was the most exotic thing I ever did when I first stepped foot into inside of businesses. And I realized that's not true for everybody. A lot of people have family members and they were exposed differently than I might've been. So maybe I just had a bigger learning curve than, than many others would have. Um, that said, neither computer science or computational work nor um, uh, business, obviously, are the discipline we're, we're talking about. We're talking about anthropology. And I do think that, you know, it, at its crux, what we do return to is are the sort of culture, and I'm thinking of social cultural anthropology in particular, are the ways in which um, actions, behaviors, meanings, do um, emerge, you know, collectively in the interstices between individuals. So psychology has a lot to offer, but it will not get you, even social psychology doesn't get you quite to those collective interstices and the meanings and values that things take on where the whole really is greater than the sum of the parts and that there is sort of a different sort of object or existence of of meaning and structure and all that sits um, beyond the individual level. Uh, so I think that those sort of cultural practices and, and some of the best writing on that and exploration, I think has been by Rita Denny and, and Patty Sunderland in some of their various explorations where they'll look very directly at, you know, here's how a, maybe a psychologist would go through a set of focus groups on a particular topic. And here's the kinds of questions that an anthropologist might ask instead. Uh, so just to remember that we, we still do have our own kind of object of study and, we, and that has value and meaning uh, that is somewhat different and ideally very complementary with these others. So those are little pieces. A curriculum obviously needs to be much bigger than that. Um, Melissa, we're we are coming back slowly. Um, I hope you're still there. That was kind of a long breakout session. Eager to hear what people discussed. Yeah. Um, okay, I suggest every group um, just summarizes the discussion. I think we only, I mean, we only had two groups. Um, usually I don't start, but in this case, I, I try to make a very short start. Um, I just wanted to say that from, from what I heard in our discussion, I see that kind of positioning could be sub subcategorized and also um, access first, like access to a client, access to a field, um, getting there, right? Um, the second one is translation. 
how do you translate your insights into a language or into a format that that has impact um and i had a third one which i forgot now but with that having said that uh, i'm opening up for anyone else that wants to jump in um maybe laura somebody from your group trying to summarize Okay, I, I don't know if uh, we 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 had a we had a chat about uh, the the particular roles each one of us occupies and how do we deal with accountability and uh, questions of positioning ourselves and positionality. Um, so it was very interesting to hear the very various perspectives of people. But one thing that um, um, that emerged was also a question about how do we. Um, I guess it goes in the vein of, of translating, but also in terms of mindset, right? It's not only translating. When you talk about translation, it's usually about vocabulary, right? Um, and how vocabularies create positions in and of themselves. But also, we, I, I think, through the conversations about the pathways that each of us have taken to the current roles that we have through you know, psychology, marketing, anthropology, um, uh, various uh, to engineering, um, you know, how we arrived at anthropology and how then we, we use that to kind of look back onto the question of how do, do we translate the whole mindset? Um, it's kind of something that um, I think is, is at least my interpretation of the conversation that we had, but but feel free guys to, to jump in and add or adapt or expand on that. I may add one, one or two sentences to that. Thanks, so it, it wasn't something that could be summarized easily, so you did a good job doing so. Um, one, one sentence that, that Miguel said stuck with me and that is, as an anthropologist, um, he, well, you can add to that, Miguel, yourself in a second, but I just wanted to put that in my own words, um, <clears throat> that it's our ability or sensibility to be able to, to understand the ways of thinking that other people in different positions have and move in and out of those. And for me, that is one of the things I said in the discussion that has a lot to do with this very old trope of the cultural broker that is able to, to, to move in and out, and maybe even the amic and the attic uh, positions in and out of, of other people's heads and cultures and understandings and thinkings. And that's the way we learn. And that's the way I think we can also come to, again, my word now, strategic position to, to formulate strategies. <clears throat> But Miguel, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Please speak yourself. No, that, that's okay, Henrich. I, uh, I wanted to say hi to everybody because we were in a separate room. Uh, Melissa, uh, it's been a long time since our last contact. Uh, uh, I am one of the few anthropologists in Latin America who does this kind of, who has these responsibilities. Uh, to work as a manager for research in, in several areas. In my, this my latest position is in user experience research because I was forced to it, uh, not because uh, it was a professional career choice. So uh, Melissa, in, in my case, I was speaking with, my, with a group in a separate room about um, what would you think uh, about this kind of approach on reverse? 
well, we are working here in a global project in which we're taking as analytical units the unconscious uh, related with culture. So uh, what we're trying to do here is to uh, make a vision about the outcome, which is a different process within a timeline. So uh, the humans have been developing products in a very linear way because you have to adopt them and you have to create them. You bring in into life, like Tim Ingold says in their, his investigations. But what about the reverse process? It will be possible to do that, to uh, being called from the futures in, in terms to make our imagination work, to make uh, things possible, products possible. So the reversal is to, to, um, to, you're asking, I'm just trying to make sure I understood, to, um, and nice to hear you or see you again, um, to, to sort of speak back from the future is what you're asking? It's about like how to um, analyze the, the human condition, the imagination as a human condition to make a reverse process. So not to develop products in a linear way, but doing it backwards. Mm -hmm. Imagine what is would be possible and to develop from that phase. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm intrigued by that. I And I also suspect a little bit, even though, as you say, there's a very linear process, you know, again, I, I mentioned like the engineers that I work with on driving behavior. Um, in some ways, I think that that is kind of an individual engineer's modus operandi, like how can we shape this to make it different? Um, and so it could look like this, and now if I build it that way, then, um, then that's what we'll get. And I think that the additional layer that we bring is, and this is where that, you know, it's two sides of a coin, that the fact that we do understand more about how existing practices, institutions, norms get not just produce but reproduce, um, we can bring that lens together with it to, to understand both the limits and possibilities perhaps with it. But I'm intrigued a little bit. I'm not, um, I, I maybe didn't fully capture that sense of reverse, but, but I guess my short thought is I do feel like for many product innovators, that's kind of, an, at least at the micro level, what's constantly going on to ask, oh, you know, it could look like this, it could be different. We could be doing, you know, if we had X, then we would be in a different place. Yes, uh, thank you, Melissa, for, for your answer. Um, what, what I'm trying to, to do is to, um, we are developing a new concept that is, it's called the outcome, and it's a call from the future. Um, hmm, interesting. We, in, in this case, what, what we're trying to do for summarizing is taking the myth as an anthropologist anthropological unit to make design. So make things that are possible, making the future as possible, not adopting the future as it's built today. Mm -hmm. it, opens, it opens possibilities. It, it's my PhD thesis as well, but um, it's, it's a, an interesting topic that it's, you know, it's very uh, adopted by different organizations. And, I wanted to take this opportunity to discuss it with you and with the rest of the members of, of this um, very joyful uh, moment in order to uh, hear some feedback because the concept is new and it will be like a, 
for us the opportunity to make it understandable for all of you. And uh, it's, it's my pleasure to hear your feedback as well as the other. Marcus and Laura, like you have a, another uh, candidate for your talks here. Yeah, 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 Miguel, please uh, let's let's follow up on this. Also, the two of us. Uh, I have a specific interest in that topic um, myself. Um, Thank you. But, Thank you. Um, and obviously, anyone that wants to join, uh, join. Um, I just wanted to say now we have already um, reached one and a half hours in in the good yes. talks. This happens way too fast, and discussions could continue for very long. Um, I will not close the room as as long as people are here. I just say that. Um, but also I want to be mindful of in case somebody has to jump off, including Melissa, um, maybe um, anyone gets the chance to say a few last words. Um, yeah, can, I, can I say something? Um, I, I feel like uh, just from working with uh, young college students uh, in the last few years in the areas of cognitive science, of design thinking, of user experience design training, um, computation engineers, it feels like everyone is, is, is uh, inflicted with the issue of positioning where you can't even, they can't even guarantee that you'll have your first job out of college will be in the same area in which you got trained in college. So I feel like, uh, and where would you find yourself as a research assistant or in a think tank or uh, you know, going to whatever, Teach for America or something. So it feels like, and there isn't this kind of uh, trajectory pathway that you can kind of promise people that you'll be involved in five years from now with what you're doing today. So I feel like it's it's maybe anthropologists feel that a little bit more in, in, in it, but I feel like it's something that's now permeating uh, into larger swaths of, uh, of society. Interesting, Deborah. I mean, I had a talk with Heinrich today um, and Please raise your hand in, in case somebody else wants to say something. I'm just talking before it gets silence, um, silent. But I had a talk with Heinrich today and, and it was very interesting to, for me to hear that um, nine years ago, he thought that in, in one or two years, there's gonna be a huge wave of this kind of thinking in Germany and the German speaking markets, right? After my, um, after my, my master's program in 2018, after I graduated, I had the feeling, okay, I get to know so many people, there's gonna be a huge wave coming to Germany and, and Austria. And I'm, well, I'm asking myself today after Heinrich's talk, maybe I'm sitting here in 10 years and see, well, never happened. Um, so also that kind of influences the positioning, I guess. And no, I don't no. know what to say with Not that. on our watch, <laughs> Marcus. No, no, not if, <laughs> not, not if we just have another cup of coffee and keep at it. All right. <laughs> no, but Deborah, I think that's a very, uh, that's a, that's a very, um, uh, I think poignant observation that you're making, um, but I would say that actually it's precisely a kind of an, a very specific anthropological disposition and I'm biased here, right? Uh, I'll admit my bias. But I think for the kind of uncertainty that, that the world is, is headed towards increasingly and that we are seeing, anthropologists especially are well positioned. And this is why I, I am an optimist that finally the wave is coming and the time is coming for applied anthropologists because I think that um, uh, the kind of mindset and the kind of, of practice um, that you have to develop as an anthropologist, um, regardless of whether, I mean, I think um, uh, those of us from, from, you know, who got our, 
uh, training in previous years and who had to do the, the classic ethnographic work, you know, like to, to ship out to, to a location somewhere with a, um, you know, uh, researching, let's say, not within the industry, right? Um, and um, the, the younger generation of, of applied anthropologists who are far more comfortable uh, doing research work and training in the industry, regardless of, of which of the two uh, cases um, it might be, still being an anthropologist and this kind of mindset of probing and asking uh, questions and being open, right? This openness um, towards um, the unexpected and catching it as it happens is precisely the kind of of disposition really um, that helps and that is gonna be very necessary um, so that, you know, yes, it's, it's, I don't wanna say that we should normalize the precarity, right? Because that's the word that, that you didn't say, but essentially it often amounts to that. Um, but I would say, and this is where, you know, this is where we're going back to the provocation of, the, of Melissa, um, that instead of just saying, you know, oh, precarity, precarity, poor us, um, what are we gonna do with it, right? How are we gonna make it work for um, the kind of world that we wanna enact and see happen, right? Um, this is where I think if, if there was a true Marxist in the room, I'd be in trouble, <laughs> but um, yeah, so it's out there um, as food for thought perhaps, but thank you for, for pointing that out. There's a lot to say to what the, the topic you guys have raised and I think uh, that would be a whole other wonderful conversation to have. But, you know, really the, the sort of this idea of a dedicated and known um, um, way of living in some ways is a, is a uh, a residue or a, a function of the industrial period. Um, you know, yes, farmers or craftsmen of various kinds would, they probably would have had, or, or, you know, through guilds or families, dispositions of likely to be, you know, one kind of, of occupation or another. But this idea that it's sort of granted to you and you should be able to count on something uh, sustained is actually historically not that old. And, um, but we've really adapt, adopted it as the only way of being. So I, I love your provocation of like sort of rethinking precarity um, and, and what to do with it. All right. Um, is there anyone else that wanted to say something and hadn't the chance to do so yet? Um, if not, I'm closing the session. Um, thanks everyone. Thank you. Thanks pleasure. everyone for joining. Um, it was very fruitful, very inspiring. Um, make sure that you come to the September event conference WWNA 2021. And um, also looking around in this room, I can see a lot of faces that would be um, well prepared for another impulse. So if you want to, to step on the stage and talk a little bit about your passion, about a challenge that you see in this world, be our guest, reach out. And um, with that, I wish everyone a Wonderful evening, or I guess Benedict, Melissa, and Deborah, you are going to join um, um, forces in the next meeting with Wymore now. <laughs> <laughs>
great. Thank you all so much for joining. Wonderful to see old friends and uh, colleagues. And uh, yeah, let's keep up the conversation. Thank you very much, Melissa. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching or listening. And don't miss the next episode of IASA's Applied Anthropology Network's Apply Club events.